Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and witness the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who also knows that water is life. Later in the program, legislator, a longtime legislator and founder of Women's Environmental Institute, Karen Clark, will join us to talk about the lawsuit against the uh, city of Minneapolis regarding the East Side Indoor Farm. So she'll join us um, in about 45 minutes. But first, what is the connection between food, climate, and justice? The death of George Floyd has made visible to the world the deeply rooted structural racism alive in Minneapolis right now. How is food, justice, and climate change connected? Joining us by phone to explore this topic is the current executive director of Minnesota 350, Sam Grant. Good morning. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Sam. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Um, So how are you feeling about this moment? Well, it is a complex moment full of grief, um, anger, indignation, and a, you know, a sort of a compelling moment to say again, something we've been saying for generations, enough, never again. One thing that's different about this moment is that, you know, the African-American community has many more people um, from different cultural and racial backgrounds who are joining with us in saying enough, that Standard strategies of reform um, are, are in, inadequate because we've been trying those strategies for a long time, and we need to do something significantly different. And so, at MN350, partly what we're saying we have to do, and you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is saying the same thing, it has been saying the same thing. We need to um, really think about the core values by which we live together, and create conditions in which no matter what color, class, religion, or geography your body is in or comes from, we are taking responsibility as human beings to create a safe and nourishing environment for all people to live well. Um, And so that's kind of what this moment is calling for. It's calling for a much more radical imagination and a much more radical cooperative practice of democracy. Yeah, and um, I'm going to read a poem right now from a a mutual friend of ours, Marita Bouget. Together we will live as neighbors. We hear the claims you make. You choose to fuel fear and distrust. But we refuse to be divided because we remember who we are, neighbors, connected by our common needs. So together we will live as neighbors, free from the poison and chaos of hatred, free to widen the circle of belonging until no one is left outside. And so, I mean, that's, that's Sylvia, I want to talk a little bit about your background because you're also involved and you helped form something called Embodied Deep Democracy. So talk about that. So back um, quite a number of years ago, um, at the turn of the century, I was doing a workshop on internalized racism and internalized oppression. And there was a person in the audience who came up to at the end and gave me a critique and said, you're talking about the stuff that gets stored in our bodies. And you can't talk about that and expect that talking about it is going to solve the problem because it's in the body. We have to do body work to get it out of ourselves. And I said, well, I don't know what that looks like. Show me. So for the last 20 years, she has been showing me what it looks like to 
use what we call body wisdom or somatic wisdom to help people to heal. And she also connected me to practitioners of deep democracy, which is about realizing that we can't leave the well-being of the earth and each other up to a representative structure of legislators to decide and act and protect for us. We have to um, practice day-to-day behavior that allows human beings to be our best selves and to be our best selves in relationship to each other as we learn to heal all of the ways we've been trained to be divided from each other, which is what Marita's poem was getting at. Right, all the ways we... Body Democracy formed in 2010, and it's a worker cooperative composed of myself, my wife, and several close friends of ours who are all BIPOC and are all doing organizing all over the world. And so every once in a while, we bring people together for these engagements where we help people pay attention to how have we been trained to show up uh, for ourselves, for our people, and with each other, and how can we, in democratic relationship, actually heal all of the ways we've been trained to be divided and co-create ways in which we can be together and live well on the earth, you know, together. And so that's kind of the, the ethos behind our work. But through Embody Deep Democracy, we also do a lot of work with organizations uh, or networks of organizations that are trying to learn how to work more effectively with conflict. Yeah, and I mean, when you think of, I, I can only speak from my own personal experience, and I and I um, and I know uh, as a woman growing up at a certain time, I kind of picked up the social narrative that women are not good at science and math, so I mm-hmm. never took a science and math class. So somehow that idea got embodied in me. And I find myself yet to this day to say, oh, I can't learn that or, oh, I can't learn that. And so by embodying or trying to go into my body where I feel the pain or where I feel the the wholeness of how these ideas have rooted in me, I can actually be more conscious to make better choices. Is that is that what you're talking about when you're talking about embodiment? Yes. So embodiment is about bringing critical consciousness to your way of being in reality by actually letting body signals help to inform you. So we have a standard response in our reptilian brain of fight, flight, freeze, or fib. So (laughs) if we just act by our default, we are not able to be our better selves. But if people practice breathing and noticing what's happening in their internal experience in relationship to external reality, people are able to take enough time and space inside to make a decision about what's the appropriate way for me to respond in this situation. Should I just remove myself from the situation if it's safe for me to do that? Or is there a wise way that I can communicate in this space at this moment that helps people I'm in this particular moment with navigate it more wisely with me? And so slowing down, getting out of our fast-moving head, and just letting our mouth, you know, sort of be a vehicle for what our head wants to say. If we learn how to practice embodiment, we don't just shout off at the mouth with the first impulse that comes. We actually breathe into what what am I noticing and what does it make sense to communicate that actually is generative of the outcome I want. And so that's a really simple way of talking about what it looks like to begin to practice somatic wisdom in the way you're living your life each day. On a broader level, there are questions about 
all of our human bodies are organized into different kinds of groups, into the broader social systems that we share. And if we learn how to bring body wisdom through our group processes as well, we can actually accelerate healing in the social body. And that's kind of like the major objective of embodied deep democracy is to facilitate those opportunities for accelerating deeper healing in the social body so that we can have a healthy earth and healthy people on the earth and no longer live divided lives. So what is the social body? Well, there's many social bodies. You talked about the narrative you learned growing up as a, in a female body, that women don't do science and math. So one social body is the heteropatriarchal social body that paints an ideology across the landscape that everybody internalizes to some extent. We're in different social groups that respond to that story that the white male heteropatriarchal body wants to tell. But it's been normalized through all of our educational institutions, in our faith-based institutions, and in our families, which are other forms of social bodies. And so comparing messages we're getting from all of these different sources, women then internalize, how am I supposed to understand and respond to this message I'm getting from the world? Thankfully, throughout all of history, enough women have rejected that meme that says women do, don't do science and math, and they have done science and math anyway. Um, so I think it's people using body wisdom to say, I denounce this idea that some people get to, just by virtue of their identity, be privileged against other identities. I'm not going to play along with that game. So using work of helping social body heal, which could be all of the women in a particular uh, public housing complex who are impacted by a similar pattern of domestic violence in their past. When those women come together and realize they share one social body story, they can co-create an alternative social body story. So just one quick example of this, I did a workshop for women in public housing in uh, West Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I was brought down to do a strategic planning workshop with them. And what became obvious once I asked women to introduce themselves was that every single one of them um, was either currently in a domestically violent relationship or had recently got out of one. And nobody in that group had any safe place to process the grief and the pain of that reality and to heal through it. So instead of doing strategic planning with the women for that weekend, what I did is get them out into nature. We went out into the Appalachian Mountains, which none of them had ever been to, even though it was only four to five minutes from the public housing complex. And in those three days, they laughed together, they cried together, and they formed a very strong bond. They created a new social body that didn't exist, of women who shared an experience, who now wanted to offer a different experience in the community. They led the campaign, which not only reduced violence in their public housing complex, but created uh, increasing social capital and economic opportunity for families that were deprived of those opportunities. So it took a new social body. That's, that's a beautiful they, story. Sam, Sam, we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, let's talk about how we create that social body for all of us and for the planet. Right. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. 
So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and joining us by phone is Sam Grant. Sam, uh, you're now currently the executive director of Minnesota 350. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Minnesota 350. I'd love to, Laura. So MN350 started back in 2011. It actually started before that, but became formalized in 2011 as an organization. And when it began, it was really committed to getting uh, Minnesota um, you know, really kind of focused on divestment from fossil fuels and stopping pipelines, you know, coming across um, Minnesota land. And through that work, uh, MN350, from its very beginning, formed really strong relationships with Native nations. And so one thing that, you know, the MN350 can be proud of is that it has done its best to be in right relationship on that journey. It has evolved over time to now having um, 12 full-time staff and one half-time staff. So we're at 13 people in the organization, and we're working on multiple campaigns. We've got a campaign focused on building a climate majority that will help us challenge the 36 senators in uh, the Minnesota legislature who are still climate deniers and just move people within their Senate districts to say uh, climate is real and we have to put a lot of you know focus on how we connect um, addressing climate change to the other critical issues in the state. We've got a clean car and clean transportation initiative, which is beginning to think about how do we accelerate getting the majority of Minnesotans out of you know fossil fuel, you know expensive vehicles, and get everybody towards vehicles that either are zero emissions or very low emissions. Um, moving people towards electric vehicles, moving people towards walking or biking or taking public transit to the fullest extent possible, which also includes having a transit system that addresses the longstanding pattern of transit inequality in terms of who most benefits from our transit system, which is not the people who are living in our poor inner city communities or living in our poor rural communities. Um, we have a campaign to um, focus on um, organizing more leaders in all of the districts of Minnesota, all of the counties of Minnesota that understand how climate change is directly related to the issues that are up in their lives and begin to move from that intersection. Um, we have a food systems team, which is more relevant for, you know, Food Freedom Radio, that has taken up a broad range of really exciting initiatives focused on how can we um, reduce food waste uh, in, in, in food systems across the whole state? Uh, how can we encourage and support um, the major corporations here in Minnesota that have made an express commitment to reduce greenhouse gases, to truly document how they're doing that so that we in the public can build trust with them as genuine partners with us in addressing all these patterns of, of uh, you know, burning too many greenhouse gases. We're very involved in both the state and the national Green New Deal strategies, um, and we're involved in the just recovery work as well thinking about how do we respond to this several-month major uh, crisis leading to an economic recession that's going to have impacts for a while from COVID-19. Um, as the COVID crisis started, we created a frontline fund to get resources straight out into um, communities most impacted by the COVID crisis, and then are asking people as we support them to, to sort of clarify what is the relationship between this current crisis 
for you and your community and the longer-term climate crisis. And we're beginning to build out some stories around what that intersection is in framing our work. When George Floyd was murdered on Memorial Day by the police in Minneapolis, MN350 volunteers and staff were out there directly on the front lines right away, participating in the marches and protests, but also working in the medical tents, and then also getting food to people on the front lines. People in MN350 have been making masks for people impacted by the COVID crisis since that COVID crisis started. Um, and one of the exciting things that I've brought into the food systems team, given my earlier work in regenerative agriculture and agroecology, is to imagine a future of Minnesota's food systems that privileges small-scale local farmers that are committed to three simultaneous objectives, sequestering as much carbon in the soil as possible um, and documenting their results. That's one step. A second is to commit to upgrade farming practices to bring back as much biodiversity in the local bioregion as possible through their farming practices. And the third is to actively contribute to local living economies in a way that also honors and upgrades the way we express racial justice in our climate justice work. So there's a longstanding history in Minnesota of limited farming opportunity or land access for farmers from indigenous or communities of color. And so part of our strategy is to begin to partner with others around the state that are organizing on that front. So those are some of the exciting things that we're doing. That's a lot of work. I'm, I, uh, there's a lot, a lot of things you are working on right now. Um, let's go a little deeper into the food issue because you were also my permaculture teacher um, uh, several years ago. And so uh, and I, I, I'm really excited that Dr. Rattan Lal um, is, is going to be the 2020 World Food Prize um, recipient because um, he has talked so much about um, supporting, uh, keeping the carbon in the soil. And so... Yep. Carbon, or um, we can have a food system that honors the earth and feeds everyone at the same time. We can, and we have to continue to push out that story. Some people are very quick to critique this idea of soil carbon or biomass carbon sequestration and just say it's a false solution because it's easy for major corporate agriculture interests to say that they're sequestering a lot of carbon in the soil but they're doing it in a way that is uh, understood, I think, appropriately as shallow. So what I'm talking about is organizing for a carbon sequestration strategy that not only really honors and uh, increases soil health, but also honors and increases ecological integrity and commits to restoring biodiversity loss, uh, habitat loss in regions over time, and does so in a way that helps more and more people within a local region reconnect to the wonder and the amazing bounty and brilliance of natural systems and to work with natural systems instead of against natural systems in the way we do our agroecological practices. So I think if we take that deeper approach to uh, a, a way of doing agriculture that is centering ecological integrity, then I think that we have a really rich opportunity to make major headway uh, over the next 10 years to put in motion a form of agriculture that helps us reduce food insecurity everywhere, um, but also significantly increases the direct relationship of people within their region to the people who are growing their food, um, and then everybody within a region taking collective responsibility for the intersection of economic quality, water quality, soil quality, air quality, and health 
in the local population. And so that, these are some exciting things that we can do, and I think that we have to stop getting in our own way and assuming wrongly that there's some expert somewhere who's supposed to be accountable for figuring this out for us, and we just have to start getting into democratic circles with each other where we collectively determine how will we do this in relationship to each other and the earth and then connect what we're doing with what other people are doing in other regions of the state and other regions of the world. And over time, this ripple ecology grows and everybody is starting to sing from the same sheet music that realizes a healthier earth and a healthier people on the earth, which I think all environmental work should focus on, all food work should focus on. But we've allowed all of our efforts to be kind of siloed and ourselves to be kind of isolated in this work. Right. And that's the real potential for right now is to end the silos. We're going we're gonna to take a break. And when we come back, I was excited that the Indigenous Environmental Network released uh, this week. They're launching the People's Orientation to a Regenerative eco- Economy, How to Protect, Repair, Invest, and Transform. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Hey, Jude. Don't make it bad Take a sad song and make it better Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Uh, this is Laura Hedlund, and joining my phone is the uh, Executive Director of Minnesota 350, Sam Grant. And Sam, let's talk a little bit about climate change. Um, you know, with COVID-19, airline, air, 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 air traffic dramatically down. The emissions are down. The, um, the International Energy Agency expects global industrial greenhouse gas emissions to be about 8% lower in 2020 than they were in 2019. And yet, this is a, a sentence from The Economist magazine, that drop reveals a crucial truth about climate change. It is much too large to be solved by the abandonment of planes, trains, and automobiles. Wow. I mean, Sam, how do we, how do we even start to wake up to how, how – is it possible still to fix the climate crisis or to, to live in a way that we don't destroy the planet? Well, I think that there's a lot of folks in the world who believe we need to figure that out. I'm certainly one of those folks. Um, so, you know, I think that we can have a optimism of the will and a skepticism of the intellect, the way that Gramsci talked about it. And so there's been a long pattern. I mean, the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change formed in 1988. And already before that, people were saying clearly human-caused climate change must be countered uh, robustly. And since 1988, greenhouse gas emissions globally have continued to go up. This COVID crisis has, in fact, slightly reduced parts per million in the atmosphere. If you go back to April, we were a little above 416 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere. And now we're right in the mid-range of about 415.7 or 0.8 parts per million carbon in the atmosphere. This is a slight reduction, which I think we could at least partly contribute or, or attribute to Uh, the COVID-19 crisis. And we have a longer-term economic impact from this because of the tremendous number of people put out of work um, during this COVID crisis. And so as we look at a just recovery, which a lot of people are talking about right now, we have a lot of really critical questions to um, examine around the intersectionality of how do we improve access to health in a way that doesn't contribute to increased greenhouse gas emissions? How do we get these 
30 plus million Americans who were pushed out of work by the COVID crisis back to work without increasing greenhouse gas emissions, but also increasing opportunities in a economy that's more sane for the earth and for people and more resilient. There's a lot of important questions for us to begin to pay attention to. And so I think part of the work right now is to map out how, in fact, everything is connected to everything else and to do some work of helping people see that looking at the intersection of all of the contributors to greenhouse gases as a whole is more powerful than thinking about in addressing one part at a time. Um, it might seem like a kind of a crazy jump, but I, I my honey berries are up this year and I got a bumper crop and I didn't know that these berries were going to like, they're going to last like 30 years and I can make some really good tea and they're wonderful for people with high blood pressure. You can make so many mm. wonderful things. And it's like, why are we all drinking corn syrup when the earth freely gives us these honey berries? I mean, why? <laughs> and I, I, you know, and, 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 and so how can the, and I know you studied agroecology. So the, the, um, the potential of agroecology and permaculture to uh, to just have a far more vital and sane food system, um, yeah. there is a potential there. But how do we manifest that? How do we embody? How do we create that? Yeah, this is an important question, and it goes back to the conversation about embodiment. We have a deeply entrenched way of being in the world, organized through all of the systems of society. Our media reinforces the industrial agricultural system. Our school systems reinforce the industrial agricultural system. Our legislatures reinforce the um, industrial agricultural system. Our major corporations, which have more power than people in our current hijacked democracy, have more power of discernment over what happens with food than everyday people living in local relationships. And the list goes on. So in order for us to have a healthy food system, we have to stop allowing our own participation in entrenched systems that are degenerative, and we have to actually co-create alternatives at scale and do so in a way that's truly equitable. We have a world of amazing alternatives at small scale, but most of our efforts are failing in being relational and crossing all of the organized racial divides of men from women, of Christians from Muslims and Jews and Hindus and so on and so forth, um, of healing the intergenerational divide between adults and young people, healing the class divide, healing the racial divide. So we have to have a more robust democratic conversation about the future we want and organize the means to manifest it and stop waiting for some expert somewhere to finally listen to us and put things into motion. There is no expert with that capacity. For that to manifest, the people have to make it happen. I'll tell one quick story to close. You know, when A. Philip Randolph, this is one among millions of examples, wanted Franklin Delano Roosevelt to do the right thing by the African-American community, he said, you got to end racial discrimination in employment. And over a several-year dialogue, what Roosevelt communicated to A. Philip Randolph is, I'm just one person in this government. And even though I'm the president, I don't have enough power to do what I just think is right ethically. I have to get Congress to make decisions that we can collectively agree on with majority you know, decisional power. And so he said, if you want me to do that, uh, A. Philip Randolph, I want to do it, but you have to make me do it by organizing the basic people in society that demand that that change come now. 
And so A. Philip Randolph organized the March on Washington movement as America was entering World War II. And so Roosevelt was now out of office, but it was President Truman who signed the executive order creating the Fair Employment Practices Act, um, which began to, with the military first, uh, end our terrible and whole pattern of racial discrimination in all sectors of the economy. Now, that was in 1941. It is 2020. And if you think about the deep-set racial disparity right here in Minnesota in all sectors of the economy, you could ask yourself, well, why haven't we made more progress in 80 years? Well, it's because of these entrenched systems that we talked about and our refusal to challenge these entrenched systems at the necessary scale. So there's more work for us to do democratically to keep pushing according to our common values and our common uh, commitment to be responsible with each other for the world we wish to see. So the only thing holding us back is the quality of the organized agreement among human beings. We have to organize that deep quality of agreement through deeply democratic processes. And then we create the future we want. And those democratic processes arise from our heart and our soul and our, and our gut level. You, you sign your emails, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But it, it, if faced with courage, need not be lived again by Maya Angelou. What, what do you yeah. mean by that? What does well, she mean? or what, what's, Why do you put that at the end of your emails? I put it there because my mom and dad were both historians and healers and educators. And, you know, my mom was actually a friend of mine, Angelo's, when my mom was alive, and also close with many of the other great scholars um, uh, in the United States, and she was one herself. So we don't know each other's histories. And because we don't know each other's histories, we keep on imposing our narratives as dueling narratives on each other. And we can't ever find that sweet spot where we begin to build a true, enduring, common narrative together. So once we begin to pay attention to history from each other's lens, we inevitably are interrupting all of our internalized assumptions about the world we're living in. And that process of discerning toxic assumptions we hold and letting them go so the truer, deeper democracy can found through our hearts and collaborative will, that's what makes this world a great place to live in, is that constant evolutionary process. So I feel like MN350 is trying to contribute to that work, and Body Deep Democracy is contributing to that work. A lot of folks who are contributing to that work, we just need to do a better job of connecting it all together to foster this greater whole. I just love um, what you just said there. Um, and, I, you know, so how does this connect with food and food freedom? I mean, what is that? It, part of it is relational with uh, the natural world. Water is life. Mm-hmm. So if you think about this word of freedom, and then, I mean, your radio program talks about food freedom, and I think there is an underlying ethos that until we free our relationship with food, we can't be free more comprehensively. And I think that's true. We have organized the enclosure and the commodification of life as a whole. So everything has a price tag on it. And so for me, when I think about what food freedom means, it means that we create a future in which we're not going to have massive social unrest in the world because we're not going to allow these hidden bodies to sort of shape price signals that increase the cost of water and increase the cost of food, making access to seeds and access to land to grow food 
more and more difficult for the vast majority of people on the world. So what we've done is displace our small-scale farmers and create these large industrial farms. What we've done is displace indigenous people and peasants from landscapes that they have been uh, in healthy relationship with for multiple generations, and we have now made them beggars in urban slums, in refugee camps, and also as landless workers working for these mega you know, mining corporations or these mega agricultural enterprises. And so part of this work is going back to uh, realizing that the healthy world requires healthy relationships in which we're each practicing a higher level of freedom in relation. And I think that some people believe that the consumer society is a high expression of freedom. I certainly don't think that's true at all. And so I think that there has to be this more open, shared conversation around what do we mean by freedom and how do we co-create it with each other. Um, and so just to, to land on this point, this is a question that is now being raised again um, with the murder by police of George Floyd. People are asking this question of, we've been here a long time, having this conversation for a long time about ending the anti-Black violence that has been normalized as a core operating value system in America, and it's still here. And we've been at this long enough without support from the rest of society that we're starting to be pretty suspicious of people saying they want a true democracy. And then what they're doing is practicing a racialized democracy. People want a fair and open economy, but they're practicing a racialized economy. People want a fair education system, but they're practicing a racialized education system. So I think a lot of people are hoping and praying that this George Floyd moment in history is a moment when we all say enough the patterns of dividing us based on race or class or gender from mutual power in shaping a healthy shared future. Well, I thank you so much, Sam Grant. Um, the website for Minnesota 350, Minnesota350.org. Uh, um, yeah, I really appreciated all your time and all you had to say today. And I'm hoping, I, I still have so much hope that, that we create our own hope and that we find it in ourselves to find the power of making love more powerful than the love, the love, more, the love of love more powerful than the love of money, than the love of power. Yeah. Right? That's a great sentiment, Laura. Thanks for letting me be on the show with you today. Um, thank you so much for your time, Sam Grant. And thank you for listening. When we come back, we'll be talking with Karen Clark about the um, Eastside e- e- Indoor Farm. This train is bound to. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund. Thanks, Sam Grant, so much. I really enjoyed the conversation we had with Sam Grant, the Executive Director of Minnesota 350. Right now, joining us by phone is uh, Karen Clark. Uh, Karen is the uh, founder of the Women's Environmental Institute and a longtime legislator. And uh, this week, um, oh, Karen, uh, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you so much. Yeah. So tell us what's going on with the Eastside um, uh, Indoor Farm proposal. Okay, the East Phillips um, Indoor Urban Farm is a environmental justice project that got started in uh, Minneapolis. Actually, the beginning of it was back around 2014 um, when um, the neighborhood became aware that the Roof Depot, which was a um, building in an organization that had originally been an old Sears warehouse, and then they turned it into a 
place where roof supplies were stored, um, and there was a kiosk and a retail center there. Um, they, we became aware that they were going out of business. And this is an amazing building, uh, 250,000 square feet, which if you take down the IDS Tower and lay it down, it's like half of that building. It's huge. <laughs> and so the community, um, as you probably know, that, that part of East Phillips is, um, has some special laws governing it. It includes Little Earth of United Tribes housing. It includes the most diverse, racially diverse and lowest income uh, community in the whole Twin Cities. So, it's a very special uh, neighborhood. I've lived there almost 40 or 40 years plus, actually, um, and represented it as part of my district for uh, 38 years when I was in the legislature. So it's a near and dear um, part of the earth to me. And when the neighborhood, uh, again, learned that there was going to be this building vacated and this seven-acre, I think a seven-and-a-half-acre plot uh, opened up um, for sale, uh Folks came together, um, basically with East Phillips Improvement Coalition leadership, and put together a multiracial group that said, "Hey, let's let's do something here that makes sure we do not have more industrial pollutants uh, set up." Because right on the other side of the street uh, is, uh, you know, our two sources of um, really serious air pollution for Phillips neighborhood residents, and that's the Smith Boundary and the bituminous roadways, otherwise known as an asphalt plant. Very um, stinky and actually very uh, toxic contaminants that come out of those two um, industries. And over the years, uh, they've had permits from the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. They are actually 20 years now without a permit, if you can believe that, without an updated permit, and they're in the process, supposedly, of fixing that. But the neighborhood just decided, let's take this situation into our own hands, put together some ideas, and the, what came out of it was the concept of using, reusing, converting that incredible building um, into an indoor urban farm. Um, part of it was going to be put into aquaponics, both low-tech aquaponics and then built alongside it, some high-tech aquaponics, uh, all uh, done with um, the idea of preserving the environment green. It's in the green zone. It's in the south side green zone, so I really wanted to make use of solar energy on the whole roof, uh, 28 units of affordable housing on top of part of the aquaponics, uh, very low-income affordable housing, actually, uh, uh, that would be serving, again, the people in the neighborhood. The idea was to create jobs um, in this converted warehouse into this indoor urban farm that would be both entry-level, uh, second-chance jobs for people within the neighborhood, and then you know, progressing up to more skills and through job training and so on. So, I mean, uh, Karen, what an incredible uh, win-win, right? I mean, create jobs, oh, yeah. sustainable, healthy foods, correct some of the environmental problems, create truly affordable housing, not the other system, So, and, and reuse a building. Um, but what is the city? It's an incredible building, yes. And what is the city of Minneapolis doing instead? Oh, my. Well... They, um, let me just say a little bit more about the progress of this before I tell you what the city did because it relates directly to the timing. Um, the people in the community came to me and we put together legislation to actually fund this idea. And so we got money through the Minnesota legislature in 2016 into 2017 
actually, when it was uh, appropriated, uh, that would create this indoor urban farm plus a number of uh, entrepreneurial spaces, farmer's market, indoor, I mean, a youth-led uh, cafe, um, Native American cultural markets, uh, Somali uh, service training, a lot of different things in that building. <laughs> the city said one day to to uh, us, or we found out when the when we had raised um, millions of dollars to do this project, we found out that the owners of the building would no longer speak to us, and then we found out that what had happened is the city had gone, I would say, behind our backs. We knew nothing about it as a community, as a neighborhood. They didn't come and talk to the official neighborhood organization. They went behind our backs, threatened eminent domain, bought the building and the land. And so they have basically said, too bad, we have our own ideas. We want to expand the, the uh, Minneapolis Public Works Department. They call it the Hiawatha Expansion because they have some of their public works plants already located on one end, end of it. So they want to put that. What they would do there is they would build, um, yeah. I think it was eight small structures. They store water pipes, sewer pipes, manhole covers, you name it, plus um, do some training in diesel uh, use for some of their equipment, build a 400-plus unit uh, employee parking ramp. <laughs> and, and you know, what we figured out from all this is, you know, let's, let's see if we can negotiate with them. You know, our original plan was seven and a half acres. So we figured out after a lot of work and, you know, like, oh, my goodness, how can we, you know, fight with the city about this? Let's just come up with some compromise we decided we could scale back to three acres and so we did that went to the city and they said nope no we want the whole thing so um, karen we're like down to our last two minutes um the news this week is you're suing the city so i want to hear a little bit about yeah. that and then i also want to hear about how our if there's ways our listeners can help with this okay well yes um after having tried many times to get the city to negotiate, which they refused, and asked them to even just do an environmental impact uh, analysis or an, even a lower-level uh, environmental worksheet, um, it's kind of the kindergarten level of, of, of worksheets of environmental analysis, they, they basically said, nope, we're not going to do that. We don't think we need to. We think, even though this is the arsenic triangle that has a special state law protecting it, we don't think we come under that law. We don't think the thresholds of what we're going to cause for traffic pollution and messing up with the arsenic and all that. We don't think they need to come under that law. We said, oh, yes, you do. So we put putting together and, and it's been announced a law that would say you must comply with the 2008, it's actually called the Clark Berglund Environmental Justice Law. It says the threshold for what is allowed from pollution from any agency or organization or business must depend on already existing burden of the people who live there. It's called a cumulative well, health impact analysis. Karen, I just want to... I want to thank you and uh, thank the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute.org for just keep fighting, right? I mean, the idea of knocking <laughs> yeah. down this building when we need uh, food and we need shelter. Um, so, uh, fight. And so, again, people can get more information by going to East Phillips Neighborhood Institute.org. So, thank you so much, Karen. And thank you, Sam Grant. And thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio.